welcome to our fifth in the series of being human. Today we're going to consider moral action. And moral action can become a very rationalistic, casuistic exploration of right and wrong. It can lead us to believe that we are duty-bound to follow burdensome rules made up by someone, God in the ultimate instance, um, and a someone who wants us to obey his will because it's his will. Kind of like when a parent says, because I told you so. And therefore, morality can be falsely understood and the inclination to rebel provoked. And I think we can see some of that in our culture today. But there is the real context for moral action is quite different, especially if we look at the way God reveals himself in Scripture. He is a just God, because if he were not, he would not be good. He would not be truth itself. What is contrary to the way reality is set up is always harmful, dangerous, and does not bring good or happiness into our lives or into reality. But in addition to revealing himself as just, that is, a good father who will punish or will discipline uh, when his children need that in order to learn to love, in order to learn to love the truth, to love the good, to do good and be good, and to love each other, God primarily reveals himself as love, especially in the New Testament when we see how much he loves us in the passion, death, and resurrection of his Son. So I'd like to start with the idea that love is all about relationality and happiness. St. John the Evangelist says in his first letter that God is love, and whoever remains in love remains in God, and God in him. And certainly John would be the one to tell us this, because he was the one who probably best knew it, aside from Mary, the mother of Jesus because John was the young apostle who was completely faithful to our Lord, who rested on his chest at the Last Supper and asked him who would betray him. John, that young faithful man, was the one who stayed at the foot of the cross with Mary, our mother, the mother of Jesus. He had the strength to do that because he realized that God is love, and whoever remains in love remains in God, and God in him. So as the Second Vatican Council says in the document Gaudium et Spes, which is all about the church in the modern world, the church, of course, being the body of Christ, that is, all of us, that the dignity of man rests above all on the fact that he is called to communion with God, he, she, right? This invitation to converse with God is addressed to man as soon as he comes into being. And we know that that's at the very moment of conception. For if man exists, 
it is because God has created him through love. And through love continues to hold him in existence. He cannot live fully according to truth unless he freely acknowledges that love and entrusts himself to his creator. This is a very profound thought. We come from God and we go to God. And he creates us out of love. He doesn't have to create any one of us. And yet he does because he chooses out of his infinite uh, love, his everlasting love, to want each one of us to be. And why does he want us to be? He wants us to be because he wants to make us happy. The good overflows. You know how it is if you have something good, you want to share it, good news, good chocolate, good whatever, anything good. When we have it, we want to tell others about it. We want to share it. Well, God, being goodness itself, wants to share his happiness, his goodness, the truth, with not just creatures, beautiful things like the earth and the trees and the flowing water of the rivers and the seas and the fish that swim in it and all those things, but he wants to share his goodness and the happiness that that brings with other beings, that is, us, rational creatures, who can know him, know the truth, appreciate the good, and love him back, and thus be happy themselves. So God then sustains us in being, he helps us all along the way, so that we can come to know him, love him, serve him, know and love others as well, because we are relational by nature, starting with the fact that the first relation is that God created us, right? So, he sustains us in existence and follows us and precedes us with his grace so that we can live in a way that perfects what we are, that is, makes us fully human, and we can enjoy happiness with him and others forever in heaven. Aristotle, who lived 300 years before Christ, could not quite understand the fullness of that statement. But, as we saw in the very beginning, he had an intuition and inclination of it, which shows us that the human being has an innate awareness of what he or she is made for. There is some sort of relationship, even if we're approaching it from the point of view of reason alone, between the maker of all and all that is. And the only kind of being that can recognize that and respond to it in a relationship of love is, of course, the human being. Which then means that the human being is entrusted with everything else that exists. Because we're the only ones who can exercise a kind of provident care over it that images God's care over it. We come into the world dependent. It's said that nobody is born alone, that's for sure. Um, but we all die alone, even if we're surrounded by people. It is a moment, it is an act that occurs between us and God. 
the one who brought us into existence. And even then, we may be surrounded by people. We die alone from the human point of view, but God is there awaiting us. So we are never alone. We are made for relationality. We are made for relationship. We're made for love. And it is relationship and love that brings us the greatest happiness. And as Aristotle and many non-Judeo-Christian people discovered thousands of years ago, what the human person seeks above all is precisely happiness. We look for it perhaps in all the wrong places sometimes, but what we are looking for is that overarching, all-encompassing, everlasting happiness for which we long. It's that hunger in the heart, that little toothache in the soul that never goes away because it's what we're made for. So I'd just like to um, summarize those thoughts with a quote from St. Jose Maria uh, in Christ is Passing By, where he says, No human life is ever isolated. It is bound up with other lives. No man or woman is a single verse. We all make up one divine poem, which God writes with the cooperation of our freedom. And now we come to moral action from, the point, from our point of view, because we are intelligent and free, and we can choose how we live. We can choose our goals and objectives, and we can choose what we choose. We determine who we are in a very real way because of our freedom. And God doesn't want slaves. He wants us to freely love. Because you can't coerce love, actually, can you? Think about it. Can you make somebody love you or love someone else? No. It's a very interior, personal act. Pope Francis, in The Joy of the Gospel, says, this mutual belonging to one another has two very important implications. Others depend on me, and I can and should depend on them. To love and to let oneself be loved, the path to maturity that is always open to us passes through incorporating into our own life these two aspects of our being with others and for others. So my being available, my being the steward, the, the provident carer of others and the world, and then admitting my vulnerability and my weakness and allowing myself to be known in that way, not just by God, but by others too, because then they will mature by being able to help me, just as I mature by being able to take care of, look out for, and help them. So this is the context of moral action. It's not standing at a crossroads where I feel the burden of duty and I must choose and the choice is mine exclusively and I know not what to choose. I have to pass before me. I must choose one. The categorical imperative says choose. Which one should I choose? What guidelines do I have? Well, myself. What should I choose? What I think is good for me. And how do I know that that's truly morally good? Well, because I would wish that everybody else who found themselves in this circumstance would be able to make the same choice and be happy as a result of it. 
This is the Kantian ethic, is the ethics of Immanuel Kant, after which most of the world, much of the world, right now in our moment in history lives. But it's deficient. And it's deficient because it is not contextualized within love and relationality, even though it appears to be. Why? Because Kant is living within the notion of the watchmaker God, the God of the Enlightenment, the deistic God, who set the world in motion and said, it's all yours. But we see from God's revelation of himself, and we see from basically reason alone, if we follow Aristotle's thinking, that that is not the way reality is structured, and therefore the Kantian ethic is not the one that's going to bring us to maturity or to happiness. Okay, we need to, to go beyond that. We, we need to learn a more encompassing, fuller ethic. I found this quote on the Opus Dei website um, on which there are many good things. There are a lot of short essays on the Christian life. I think it's under the resources tab that you might like to go and look at um, because they're very interesting, very brief, very practical, and very helpful uh, for our, our ongoing thinking about how we live and why we live. So this particular quote says, living alongside others develops our personality, but the reality is much richer than this. We need others and they need us. They are never superfluous. They're never extra. They're the land to which we always belong and from which God calls us to receive and welcome everyone. Because we have a history, a family, a neighborhood, a culture, each of us is a home, not just has a home, but we are a home that is into our hearts. Should We should welcome other people. That was my little aside. The quote continues, a place of welcome. We can create a home wherever we go. Because we have a home, we can view the world as a home, as our own home, and at the same time as our common home. Quote from Pope Francis. Affection for our roots, the serene cultivation of our way of being, enables us to love and to be loved, to welcome and to be welcomed. So there again, know thyself is one of the first imperatives of moral action. I need to know not only who and what I am, but exactly how I am. I need to know my inclinations toward uh, virtue and vice, and then I need to develop the good habits called virtues that will allow me to mature in my personality so that I can live this relationality that is natural to me and give the gift of self, which will create community and also create good, stable, solid political communities in which everyone can flourish. Now, how we work that out legally in political structures, etc., is up to us. But that's the bottom line of the organization of community. So as we already noted, human beings are oriented toward that which transcends ourselves. We want something beyond ourselves. We want more than just being alone with ourselves. We're made to encounter, know, love, and interact with reality outside ourselves. We're interdependent, the environment that we share with others and other living things, and we desire the mutual knowledge of other persons that is the basis for love. So friendship 
is fundamental, is necessary, is written into our very nature. The greater the degree of our self-transcendence, in other words, the better we live that order of charity, first God, then others, then myself, because we will always take care of ourselves. I mean, unless we distort that for some um, misunderstood reason of self-giving, but the greater the degree of our gift of self to others, the happier we will be, because in a sense, it frees us. I don't have to worry about myself, and I don't have to worry about myself specifically because I know God is looking out for me, and those around me love me and are looking out for me. So what are virtues? Virtues are habits of choice. They're habits of choice that we build, like any other habit, and Stephen Covey says that it takes only 21 days to build a habit. Um, sometimes I think in our experience we realize it takes a little bit longer than that, right? Because we have challenges. Those challenges are sometimes called temptations, right? Obstacles in the world, obstacles within ourselves, uh, laziness, lack of desire, self-centeredness, whatever. But virtues are habits of choice that then develop a habitual and firm disposition to do the good. And the virtues, it's very interesting because if you look at the history of ethics, the history of morality, throughout time and across cultures, the Ten Commandments, um, those ten understandings of what it takes to be human, come across in every culture and in every period of time. So reason alone can recognize them. And the big discussion in every culture is how should we live? What makes us good? What makes us happy? What makes for good community? And if you read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, which is an easy read, it's not at all complicated, what we see there is the culmination of humanity's endeavor up until about 325 BC to understand what it means to be human, what it means to be good, what is not good, what is evil, what is bad, and that our destiny is happiness, and how to get there as best we can through the understanding of reason alone. So what virtues does Aristotle come to as a conclusion of the human discussion of this topic up until his time? Well, he says that there are four that are characteristic of the mature, well-developed human being, and they are prudence, justice, prudence is called wisdom as well, prudence or wisdom, justice, moderation or temperance, and courage or fortitude. They're the four moral virtues that are, if you will, natural to the human person because they, make, they precisely make us human. So these dispositions, these stable dispositions, are dispositions of the intellect, of the mind, and of the will. There are virtues that govern how we think as well as what we choose to do. And prudence is the mother virtue that links the two. These virtues order our passions, those instincts that we have, our emotions, as we've seen in other um, moments when we've discussed these, these ideas in previous classes, and they guide our conduct in accordance with reason and faith. Because reason, Aristotle says, is the specifically human function. It's what characterizes us as human beings as compared to anything else on the planet. So if it is our characteristic function, says Aristotle, is, it is our highest function, 
and it is the one according to which we should act. It is the one we should perfect in order to be as human as we can be. So the human virtues dispose us uh, to do this, to, to order our passions, guide our conduct in accordance with reason and faith. The theological virtues, which are infused with baptism, dispose Christians to live in a relationship with God, and they have God as their origin, their motive, and their object. So faith, hope, and charity specifically link us to God. They're infused in our soul at baptism, and they give us the strength to live dependent on God in the first place, and then to bring that relationship with Him um, and all of that mean, that that means into our relationships with others. So virtue as a habit of choice means excellent reasoning and living in accordance with excellent reasoning. The intellectual virtues include knowledge or understanding and wisdom or prudence. So we need to develop our minds. We need to learn, we need to know what is good and why it's good. Again, we can go back to that very um, sort of dutiful or I would say even childish attitude toward morality and say, okay, what are the rules? What are the laws? That's what I need to know. No, no. I don't need to know that and just abide by rules. I need to know why those rules are good for me then I can love what is good. I can love doing them, okay? Aristotle says that virtue includes pain in its um, acquisition, but once it's acquired, we are happy to choose and do the good. And because we can't choose something that we don't first know, unless we know what virtue is and why it is worthy of choice, why it will bring me happiness, we will not choose it, okay? All of the acts of our choice are performed under the influence of motives. So I need to have a reason why I want to choose to do this, why I want to be moderate, just, courageous, okay? And because the will is the guiding force of a human being, I mean, a human being will work to get what he or she wants, even to the death. And we see that in the lives of many people who work for human goods as well as supernatural goods. We think of the martyrs who died for the truth of the faith, who died for the truth, for love of God. We can think of a scientist like Madame Curie or uh, anyone else who has dedicated themselves to advancing human knowledge for the good of mankind. It's brought us all the goods that we have from science and technology. The dangers, or perhaps the negative things that have come from that pursuit are due to what? Defective moral choice, defective moral action, perhaps out of ignorance, perhaps out of defective choice, which ultimately, when it's chosen on purpose, is called vice. So the fundamental moral obligations are to do good and avoid evil, and to seek the truth and once found to embrace it and act on it. Mature human action is rational, that is reasoned, free, responsibly chosen. And it, is, it creates, as well as flows from, the integration of mind, heart, and will in what we choose and in what we do. And there's a difference between love and appetite that's important to mention. 
Appetite sees value in something or someone, wants it as a goal, because it is good or useful for me. The focus is on me. Love, on the other hand, recognizes that something or someone is good in itself and deserves to be loved. So we see right there the difference between love and appetite is the difference between self-centeredness and self-transcendence, going out of oneself, giving the gift of self. And the great thing is that then we receive the gift of self of others. That's what relationship is. That's what love is. Now, granted, sometimes in this world, in this life, we may give ourselves and the other does not give back, takes, uses, abuses, takes advantage of. That's the risk of love. Oh, but also it's loving responsibly. It's knowing where I place my love so that I don't love what is not worthy of my love. Now, there's no human being who is not worthy of my love, but I need to exercise prudence and caution so that I give the gift wisely and can bring that person to wanting a true, noble love. But that's a little excursion from our topic of the day. So what is a human action? As I said, one that is chosen purposely. It, it's something I know what I'm doing and I want to do it and therefore I can be held responsible for what I'm doing. Because not everything that a human being does is strictly speaking a human act. I mean, I walk, I get out of bed, I work, I feel yucky, I digest, I digress. I pull my hand out of the fire, I turn on the light. Those things are very different. I walk because I want to get up and do that, right? I get out of bed because I want to get out of bed and do that. I mean, it might be more comfy in there on a snowy morning, but I work. Well, maybe because I have to, because if I don't earn my daily bread, I'm not going to have it. Um, or maybe because I like it, or maybe because I realize that work is a completion of what it means to be human and I can contribute. I can give the gift of self to others. I feel yucky. There's absolutely no choice in that. If I feel yucky, I feel yucky. I ate something that wasn't good for me, and that's the way I feel. That's not a human act. So behavior, then, is instinctive. We do a lot of things that are, that are instinctive. Um, or we also have conditioned or habituated behavior. I do certain things because I've gotten in the routine, and, and that's the way, you know, I get up, I get out of bed, I brush my teeth, I comb my hair, you know, and on it goes. But then there's intentional and free human action. That is, actions that I choose, ways of behaving that I choose. So it is intentional. I choose to be a certain way. I choose to be a kind person versus rude. I choose to be uh, an honest person as opposed to a scoundrel, uh, whatever. So intention is the source of integration of my tendencies, emotions, motives, my reason, my will, and the use of my powers, right down to the movement of my body and the, the use of the instruments that I use. That's a free human act. It begins with intention. So there are human acts that are interior and exterior. I can choose to do something outside of me, like go and take my elderly neighbor to the doctor because she has no one to take her. That's an exterior act. But I can have an interior act take place. 
I can think well or badly of another person. Let's say someone was less than kind to me, rude perhaps. It happens, somebody cuts you off in traffic, etc. Well, my interior disposition is within my realm of choice. I can either start thinking, what a stupid person. I can speed up my car. I can try to cut them off. I can think that person has no manners uh, and, and, and all kinds of other bad things about that person. I can choose to go down that path of thinking or not. And the way I think, the way I use my mind, my interior landscape is largely under my control. Maybe not the things that come up. Sure, somebody cut me off in traffic and I think, oh, what an idiot, right? Or, or that maybe. <laughs> the thought that comes to my mind if I haven't developed lots and lots of virtue. But anyway, I choose to pursue that thought. So I choose to develop an attitude or not. And my external actions, as well as my internal landscape, is going to be filled with good or evil because of my choice. So what are the components of moral choice? There are three. They're called the sources of morality of human acts. And they're the object I choose, the end or intention I have in, in, in mind, and then the circumstances of the action. A morally good action requires the goodness of its object, its intention, and the circumstances altogether. A good intention cannot make an act that is intrinsically evil good. I mean, Aristotle says this in his Nicomachean Ethics. He says there are some acts that are, it is never right to choose, murder, adultery, theft, etc. So these actions can never be chosen for themselves and be good. The object of an act, the moral object, is the action I am going to do. So if the action I am going to carry out is evil in itself, is not in itself intended to achieve a good end, a good goal, that action is morally evil in itself. It is not something that I can licitly choose and be a good person. The intention must be good as well. I mean, I can give, if I have them, oodles of money to charity, but if I'm doing it just so that everybody knows that I'm such a charitable person, I'm vitiating my intention. It's not because I'm concerned about the people who will benefit from my gift, which would be the higher motive. I'm looking for something personal for myself. I want others to think well of me. Okay. So right there, that intention limits the goodness of my act. It doesn't make it evil, but it, it limits the goodness of my act. It distorts the ultimate goodness of what was chosen, right? And then the circumstances in which an action is performed can also um, alter the moral character of the act. So for example, if I, let's take a really horrible example because I, you know those stick in the mind and, and they really characterize the issue. To murder someone is bad, okay, intentional murder is bad, but we sometimes read in the paper that someone kills uh, a brother a sister, a mother, or a father. That's worse. 
okay, because of the relationship that's, that's uh, destroyed there, right? Um, so when I choose, especially when I'm faced with a, a moral choice, I need to make sure that what I'm choosing to do, the action itself, is a good action. That, that kind of action will achieve a good result, okay? Uh, a result that is morally good. That my intention is good, I'm doing it for the right reason, and that I'm doing it in the right circumstances, so at the right time with the right person, uh, using the right uh, means, the right tools, the right whatever, okay? Uh, which is why, uh, you know, Aristotle would say adultery is always wrong, right? Well, we know by the Ten Commandments too. But we, we innately know that, that that is not right, okay? Because of those reasons. Wrong, I mean, the act itself is not evil in itself. It's, it's, it's okay, it's great when it's between a husband and a wife, okay? But when it's with the wrong person at the wrong time in the wrong place, uh, you know, it's, it's not. It's a distortion of a good act and it makes it evil, okay? So what is conscience? Conscience is a judgment of reason about the moral quality of an act, that is, its goodness or its badness. And it is in this judgment of conscience that we assume responsibility for an act. Okay. So conscience is not a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on the other saying, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Um, nor is it some sort of voice in my head. It's my innate recognition by my reason and then a judgment that this action is morally good or morally bad, and I either should do it or not because it is good or bad, and I either will do it or not because it is good or bad. So we have the ethical obligation to follow what we know to be just and right, which means we have to follow our conscience. But our conscience first has to know what is right and judge rightly, which is why education of conscience is a lifelong task. So we really need to read, uh, get guidance in our moral choices, too. I mean, <laughs> Aristotle says, we, well, it's a big choice. We don't choose alone by ourselves. We go and look for counsel, and that, that's a very wise thing to do, right? Um, to seek advice because our education of our conscience is a lifelong task, and because conscience can be a right conscience, that is, judge rightly according to reason, according to faith, or it can be erroneous, we can be mistaken. We can think something is right and good when it is not. I mean, if you read Jennifer Fulweiler's Something Other Than God, you know, you see a woman who has um, come to understanding of, of what is true and good and right uh, after having had some error uh, about what is true, good, and right. Um, or conscience can be lax, a lazy conscience. And that's typical of, for example, a person who has not educated their conscience. Okay? Um, we can, yeah, yeah, I learned the moral law. I learned right and wrong somewhere in my childhood, and I kind of like coast on that for the rest of my life. But that's, that can really be laziness, so lack of responsibility. And then when I'm faced with a moral choice, I don't know what to do, and so I, I do whatever comes to mind. That at first blush seems to be the thing to do. Um, but actually, morally speaking, I'm responsible for the development of my conscience. And so my conscience is lazy if it's lax 
if it doesn't rightly tell me what is good or evil in choice, I'm responsible for not having formed my conscience. Uh, so that's another bit of responsibility I need to take into consideration. We also need to remember that the natural inclination of the will is distinct from actual choice. I can feel all kinds of things. I can be attracted to all kinds of things. I can des feel desires for all kinds of things. But the fact that I feel or I am attracted, uh, no matter how strongly, is not a moral choice. The moral choice comes when I decide to commit my will to a course of action. So something that I often used with students is uh, one of these hyperbolic hypothetical situations that I like to dream up and use because they, again, they stick in the mind, I think. Um, okay, let, let's suppose I really want a Patek Philippe or a, a Rolex watch. I covet one of those watches and I decide, I don't have the money uh, to buy one, but I really want one. So I'm gonna go to such and such a department store on such and such a day and distract the uh, salesperson. And when they're totally distracted from me, I'm just gonna put the watch on and, and leave and it'll be mine forever. Okay, obviously that's a bad choice. Now suppose I'm in the case of deliberate, gee, I really want that watch. I want it so badly. It's the object of my desire. I don't know what. And I tell myself, no, not a good choice. Okay, I've made a good choice. But what if I tell myself, hmm, if I ever get the chance, I'm going to do it. That's an exterior act. I've committed my will to the choice, and I am responsible for that choice. It's as if I had gone and stolen the watch, if I have the firm determination to, yeah, I'm gonna go to the department store, and if I get a chance, I am gonna con the salesperson out of that watch, okay? So a choice is, an interior action, first of all, and then it can be completed externally or not. A choice in the right direction will bring us happiness because it's congruent with the good. A choice in the wrong direction will do one of three things. If I don't do something that is actually a good thing to do, like I could help the little old lady across the street, you know, typical Boy Scout uh, dilemma, I could help the little old lady across the street or not. I, sh I see she's really kind of floundering and she doesn't know whether to go or not. And, and I decide, yeah, no, what, what the heck, I'm busy. You know, I want my Starbucks coffee. Well, that's an act of omission. I neglected to do something good. Or I can choose a lesser good. That is, I can choose something that's not bad, but I could have made a better choice. So let's say I decide to play video games instead of um, forming my conscience. Let's take an immediate example, right? Instead of reading something that is going to uh, develop my mind, develop my understanding of reality, goodness, truth, etc., I choose to play video games. Well, I, I may develop a lax conscience and that's a poor choice and I'm responsible for it, right? Um, or if I make a wrong choice and I get the just desserts of my choice, I'm going to be frustrated and unhappy. So if I try to buy friendship, if I try to coerce love, what's going to happen? I'm not going to be loved. 
I'm not going to have friendship. Will I be happy? No. I'm going to have that nose bent out of shape feeling that, oh, dang, I, I, I'm alone. Here I, I didn't get what I wanted. And of course not, because I was trying to get perhaps a good thing, but in the wrong way. So the good habits we form by means of our choices called virtues, when they become second nature, result in self-possession. I don't have to think about, I'm not thinking about myself all the time. I'm not obsessed by my wants, my needs, my desires, my whatever. This enhances my freedom, it perfects my humanity, it makes me happy because I'm not obsessed by all of those things, right? And it allows me to then give the gift of myself, which brings me an even greater happiness uh, because I'm living the order of charity. First God, then others, than myself. And I feel, as you know, we saw in one of those early quotes, I feel loved, cared for. Somebody has my back. I'm not alone. Of course, the worst thing you can do to a human being is make them be alone, which is why solitary confinement is one of the worst punishments that can be inflicted on a human being. Okay? We're not made to be alone. God says that after creating Adam, putting him, put him in the world, and letting him name all the animals. And, you know, there's all of Eden, perfect, beautiful, everything you need to be happy. And God looks at Adam and he says, hmm, it's not good for man to be alone. What does he do? He creates Eve. Okay. Which is interesting because in the next class we're going to talk about relationality and sexual differentiation. Okay. In any case, to finish up this class, um, when we live this order of charity, as I said, we are nested, we are taken care of, someone has our back, and we feel happy and willing, because we don't have to think about ourselves, to go and do that for other people, which creates community, which will then create society, and if we learn to choose well, we will create as good a community and as good a society as we possibly can for each other. Now, will it ever be heaven on earth? Absolutely not. It can't be. We're limited. We're defective in the sense that we make poor choices, we have original sin, but we can try to get it as good as it can get. And again, we're not alone in that. God is there helping us with his grace. So is peace possible? Yes. Is friendship possible? Yes. Is love possible? Yes. Is fraternity possible? Yes. So just to finish here with a few quotes from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that I think summarize our thinking today very nicely. Um, the fact that we are rational and relational means that we are called to love. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church, point 27, which is one of the first points, uh, all about God and, and you know, creation and man's relationship to God, says, the desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself. He's always there, always loving us, right? Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. Following on that idea in number 1878, all men are called to the same end, God himself. There is a certain resemblance between the unity of the divine persons in the Blessed Trinity and the fraternity that men are to establish among themselves in truth and love. Love of neighbor is inseparable from love for God. And that's a quote from Gaudium et Spes, Second Vatican Council. Again, number 24. And finally, to conclude our thinking today, number 1829 from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The fruits of charity are joy, peace, and mercy. 
Charity demands beneficence and fraternal correction. It is benevolence, it fosters reciprocity and remains disinterested and generous. It is friendship and communion. And quoting from St. Augustine, uh, in a homily on the letter of St. John, love is itself the fulfillment of all our works. There is the goal. That is why we run. We run toward it. And once we reach it, in it, we shall find rest. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.